Hello, loyal Radio Statler listeners. Um, we're going to be killing the live feed audio from upstairs now. There we go. And uh, coming up next is the Privacy Patriots podcast, uh, Restore the Fourth. Good afternoon, and I, I guess this will mount to episode zero, maybe we'll call it, of the Privacy Patriots podcast. I'm Fongaboo, and I'm here with Alex Matthews, the national chair of Restore the Fourth, and Zachy Munyon, who's uh, with our, our Bay Area. And, uh, you know, I think we, we had this idea to, to uh, when we started Pri- Privacy Patriots, we were originally going to make it, uh, you know, thinking it, it would be a movement, but um, we found that um, the, uh, that when Restore the Fourth was still, uh, was still very active, we found that, you know, why recreate uh, what was already in motion, and I think Privacy Patriots is from here. We're going to launch it as uh, a podcast for Restore the Fourth, and I should uh, before we go further, I want to give a bit of a a verbal canary, and that's that um, that we have not received any legal instruments <laughs> requiring us to turn over any information. <laughs> so. Um, Let's talk a bit about Restore the Fourth and what we're about. I, uh, I f- think it's fair to say uh, we're a grassroots organization that's uh, trying to fight for privacy issues in the digital era. Would that be a good description? That would be a great description. And thank you, Fong, for um, putting this together today. So um, what we look to do is to restore the Fourth Amendment. We look to fight against government mass surveillance programs. Um, and to create a space again for people to flourish in their activities and their desires, um, unconstrained by government surveillance. The idea or the ideal of the Fourth Amendment is really that we should be free to do what we want to do, provided, you know, there isn't probable cause of our involvement in an actual crime, that if you are not in doing illegal stuff, the government should fundamentally leave you alone to pursue your tastes and to pursue your wishes. So we are the organization for human thriving at Restore the Fourth. And what we do is to organize chapters around the country to advocate locally on ordinances and on measures to roll back surveillance. We've just secured the passage of a surveillance oversight ordinance in Santa Clara County, California. We also work legislatively at the national level and we've been involved in every fight that you can think of when it comes to legislation in the surveillance state. So Patriot Act Section 215, um, the recent fights over uh, the electronic communication transaction records that the FBI was trying to get access to with a national security ladder instead of a warrant. We've been involved with that. We've been involved with setting up the new Fourth Amendment caucus that there is in Congress. And so we are trying to keep our fingers on the ball, keep our uh, our eyes on the ball and our fingers on the pulse um, (laughs) regarding what is happening with you, your rights and your privacy, both locally and nationally. So Turning it over to you, Fong, and to you, Zaki, to talk a little bit more about the work that we've been doing. Well, what, what I had in mind as we launched this podcast is kind of uh, focus on, for lack of a better term, crypto politics. And uh, I think that's kind of a phenomenon that's, uh, in some ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a new thing as we start to see the issues that, that uh, have traditionally only concerned those of us in the hacking community, the open source software community, are now becoming America's issues. And um, as we start to see bad actors, especially in government, that are are, uh, trying to clamp down on our rights and our ability to to keep our information private, um, you know, I think we have more, now we have a, a new mission beyond just you know what we're doing with software, what we're doing with uh, networking systems. Um, 
you know, like it or not, I think we have to get involved in our political systems firsthand because uh, otherwise other people, and if I can say ignorant people in places of power, are going to uh, make the decisions for us. And we've seen a number of really foolhardy pieces of legislation that have come across both in the national and state levels uh, in the last year. Uh, You know, and maybe we could talk about some of those. I know, um, Zachy, you did your part to defeat a a bill that was going to essentially, is it fair to say it was going to ban encryption on mobile devices in all of California? Yeah, so... Um, Oop, your mic's not on. Maybe, maybe we'll pop you. Hello. Yes. Zaki, you have a oh. wonderfully deep voice. <laughs> uh, so Restore the Fourth uh, went to Sacramento um, to uh, confront a backdoor bill that had been proposed by um, a former member of law enforcement who is now uh, an assembly member in California, Jim Scott, uh, that would have been, um, well, it was originally conceived as a backdoor bill, um, but then as a result of how uh, uh, opposed the technology industry was to a backdoor bill, it was reconceived as a tax on encryption, where any encrypted device that would that for which there no backdoor exists would be um, the manufacturer would have to pay, I believe, up to five thousand dollars per incident. It's almost um, a vice tax, in a way. Yeah, that was how that it, and. I think the way in which to understand this is to understand that there is a coordinated national effort to try to find a mechanism um, to um, undermine people's rights to have strongly encrypted uh, access to strong encryption. Um, and because of the in- intense opposition to, from the technology industry and from parts of the national security state, to um, federally mandated encrypted backdoors, you're seeing a lot of experimentation at the state level now, and see like what can be what what is palatable, what can be snuck through, what what kind of fe- uh, uh, fear mongering tactics can be used to deliver uh, um, to deliver the um, a solution to uh, or to g- deliver less encryption for the average person. I think it's notable that. I, I, I don't know if you agree, I feel this way as an activist that, um, you know, I feel it's kind of more, it, it's it, it's much more insurmountable to try to tackle something politically at the national level uh, than to do so at the state or municipal. And I think uh, the folks who are enemies, you know, enemies of digital privacy, let's call them plainly, um, I think they have the same idea that like, okay, the, the feds are, you know, uh, hemming and hawing or, or, you know, not making much inroads at this level. Let's, uh, let's try to draft something on a, a state level. And to that end, we saw almost word for word the same t- bill was brought forth uh, in New York by uh, State Senator Tatone. Uh, and also Louisiana. Yes. So, I mean, do we have any... The, the fact that these state bills that are almost boilerplate with each other are do we have any suspicion uh, are they c- coming from any kind of central origin I don't think it's necessary to suppose that they are coming from a central origin that does happen with state legislation um, from time to time but neither the more conservative um, organization that does this, which is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, nor the more good government liberal organization, um, which is NCSL. Um, Neither of them, I think, have really taken such an interest in these kind of tech issues that I would think it reasonable to think that these bills are coming from them. It can simply be individual legislators looking to make their mark and seeing examples from other other states that they want to borrow and adapt for their own purposes. Um, That's certainly what we do to some extent when we're trying to introduce positive legislation over in Massachusetts with our chapter there. 
Yeah, and I think it, you, it's it's scary to have things pop up specifically in the states of New York and California because just in a legislative sense, um, the, where those two states tend to be um, groundbreakers or trailblazers, uh, you know, using those words ironically a lot of times in terms of legislation that they get passed. A lot of times, it's not uncommon to see something get passed in New York and then um, uh, someone, in, a legislator in, in California will kind of pick up the, the same idea right after or vice versa. Yeah, that's right. So if you are thinking about tech-oriented people in the audience who um, maybe aren't spending time in the ins and outs of state, legislature, state legislation, then um, how do people like that get connected to the process? How do they start being in a position where they can make a difference and bring their perspectives to state legislatures that often are not familiar with or hearing from the voice of the tech community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know it, it's important in the in this in inaugural podcast to those of us that are listening. You know, we're, I think we're going to have a fair number number of people that um, you know are are not politically active, are not familiar with uh, the processes that go on in our, our state and national governments. Uh, you know, uh, not familiar with processes like lobbying and 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 don't flat out don't realize that. Uh, that's something that anyone can do. You know, we think of lobbying uh, in terms of we have this picture of just corporate interests and these, uh, you know, big suits that are being sent by, uh, you know, huge corporate backing. But, um, you know, I live in Albany, the capital of New York State, and basically, you know, it takes, I'm lucky to have the proximity, the physical proximity, but lobbying amounts to I go down there I knock on doors um, you know I, I am urging lawmakers you know we want you can we get you your support behind this bill can we make sure you're not supporting this uh, some other bill um, in fact I don't know how it is in California maybe you can tell us a bit of the process but in in New York Tuesday is the big lobby day, and you'll literally see different organizations come in with bus loads of people. Like uh, sometimes you see some, a group like the AARP, and they'll be running down the halls in T-shirts and everything. It's like a team sport, lobbying. <laughs> running? Are you sure for the AARP? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but um, I mean that's neat. That's my experience in in the New York legislature. What what are things like in Sacramento? So Restore the Fourth uh, Bay Area has usually we make about uh, three or four, maybe sometimes five trips per year um, to Sacramento um, on behalf of different privacy uh, causes. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly a thing that we've learned how to do through doing it. Um, and uh, the, what it looks like now is typically um, we will... We, we keep an eye on um, privacy relevant legislation. Um, some we have uh, we have we've we've developed over the last three years relationships with different members of the uh, state senate and the assembly who are sensitive to privacy issues. Um, but our you know our first lobby trip was very uncoordinated. We literally just we there you know we we had, in that particular instance we proposed a bill. But you know you see a bill coming down. Um, lobbying is just literally a process of getting in our cars, driving three hours to Sacramento, uh, usually with a group of us, um, going around the Capitol building, trying to get 10, 15 member minutes of staff time, and you literally just walk into an office. Um, there's a reception at the, the office. You talk about what the issue is that you want to talk about, um, and they'll connect you with the right staffer. Um, and spending 15 minutes with that staffer and getting their contact information will allow make it you know, and the next time you do it, you can make an appointment with that staffer. Um, so typically in the life cycle of a piece of legislation, um, there are, you, you require three or four different visits um, because there will be usually committee hearings um, and then full votes um, and meetings with staffers before that are incredibly valuable. The other thing that is especially true about privacy and technology issues is that legislatures are completely starved for technical expertise. Um, and the big tech companies 
um, strategically don't want to provide that technical expertise um, because of the fact that they feel like that just makes uh, it strengthens uh, the sort of anti-privacy cause. So there's a huge role for sort of grassroots technologists to come up and not a sort of put any sort of corporate name associated, but share their technical expertise with staff and with legislators. Um, and that was definitely true um, with the encryption backdoor bill. The encryption backdoor bill was going to die anyways because California, one of the unique things about California is we have a constitutional right to privacy and we have committees yeah, that we're are... we're not that lucky in New York. But. We're committees focused on... Um, on privacy, we have privacy committees in both the assembly and the uh, senate. So every privacy, every privacy impacting bill has to actually go through a very pro-privacy committee that is structured that way, mm-hmm. um, and that makes it so it's virtually impossible. It, the the backdoor could never have moved forward. But the fact that we were there and we were able to communicate some of our understanding of how encryption on phones actually works. Uh, sort of enriched and made it a much more lively and one-sided, and less one-sided, and much more memorable hearing, um, which I think is going to make it a lot harder in the future to ever move something like this forward. Mm-hmm. Now, if I could loop back a, a bit to, you know, the, the inauguration of this podcast and what we're looking to do with this podcast, you know, um, we're, I think we're going to keep it pretty general today for the conference, but, you know, I, th- I think this podcast will be kind of an inside baseball for the politics of privacy. Um, for you know, like, uh, w- want to keep people up to date, up to date on you know these are bill, here are bills that are cropped up, here are the people s- supporting, here are the against, here are the you know here are our allies, here are our enemies, that kind of stuff, and you know, but it, in this initial uh, broadcast, you know, I, I think we're, we're giving people kind of a taste of our experience and what we've done, but. I'll circle back to Restore the Fourth and what Restore the Fourth is about is we're looking for more people that are willing to be boots on the ground to kind of work the hallways of their state, uh, their state capitals or their municipal governments and be that voice right there uh, to try to influence politicians. Because Uh, the voice that is already there in the halls in many cases is the strong voice of law enforcement and Mm -hmm. unfortunately it happens that for a lot of what we do law enforcement is ranged against what we are trying to advocate for because they are the ones who are trying to penetrate people's communications and to violate people's privacy in the name of law and order and so um, acting as a counterweight to those forces is intrinsically a valuable thing to do for legislators because if they hear one side of the question then that is the side that they will go for but there is also important work that technologists can do that doesn't necessarily involve the physical presence in the halls here i'm thinking of for example developing calling tools and developing signal single purpose websites um, to facilitate people in um, the lobbying that they are doing t- to on particular issues. Um, so there have been some remarkable cases where organizations have been able to facilitate thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of calls mm-hmm. um, on privacy-related issues. Um, I remember that Fight for the Future managed to completely overwhelm Congress's fax system. Um, <laughs> because they found that the best way of actually getting through to a congressional office was to use the fax system and they managed to hack things in so that they could send them en masse. Um, These are helpful ways for tech people to increase the heft of pro-privacy people, of anti-surveillance people, and to amplify their voices in the context of a media environment and a political environment that all too often only gives the pro-surveillance point of view. And, and you mentioned Fight for the Future. Uh, both them and the EFF, I feel, maybe if you could share some examples, but they, I can, off the top of my head, I can think of SOPA where they were successful utilizing that mechanism where you're talking about where you uh, use websites and social media to drive uh, masses of people to, uh, you know, even if they can't walk the halls, that they can make 
uh, contact with their representative and make it o- make it overwhelmingly known that this is not not what the people want. But yeah. what, what were some other uh, instances like that? Well, um, one tactic that we found is useful is to get people to tweet at their representatives. Um, because truthfully, representatives get very few tweets directed towards them. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe they do if they get in serious marital trouble. Um, <laughs> but in the general course of things, there are not many people who get up in, uh, on a given day and say, hey, I'm going to tweet at my representative and tell them what a great job they're doing or make their life miserable. Um, so you can tweet, get different people to tweet a total of maybe 30 tweets at a legislator and it will get noticed whereas 100 or 200 calls might not filter up in the same way so it can be a very effective method now uh, that's a good segue into strategy um you know if i can uh have some thoughts of my own in part about political strategy and and kind of how we win what's what's amounting to be a battle uh for our, our digital privacy rights um uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of went back to. I remember years ago, you and I, um, we we attended a uh, an activist workshop in Boston, and and during that workshop, one of the one of the ways they would kind of get you to visualize your activism is, uh, you know, um, how do you imagine what does winning look like? And I think that's important for us as a community to establish right now. Is what what does winning look like in this new battle and i'll give my thoughts on it but why don't i why don't i throw it to you guys what what's your vision of what is success zaki what is the world that you see um let's get utopian (laughs) so the world that i see is i think there's I, i think it's abundantly clear what the world would look like the world would look like the digital tools that people use to do their lives are as secure as companies and computer scientists and technologists can make them. So we have secure protocols, we you know, have encrypted communications, um, we have ubiquitous access to secure privacy technologies. I think this, the other piece that is like, you know, victory is impossible without um, a significant number of people who think about the Fourth Amendment the way the NRA thinks about the Second Amendment, which is a group of people who understand that without meaningful protections against uh, uh, warrantless, uh, without protections against general surveillance, and the, uh, the notion of a free society is impossible and are willing to vote based on that um, and advocate and because there is an internal vigilance aspect of this. The, uh, the power of using technology to mass surveil people is always going to be so appealing to governments um, that we need to have a, a, a large community of people who, 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 who will spend you know, little parts of their time and call their members of Congress and exercise uh, power and make consumer choices uh, that are oriented towards constraining the immense power that is potentially available to mass uh, to government through mass surveillance. So I would agree that mass surveillance is like crack for governments. Governments just <laughs> love, love, love mass surveillance. There are lots of governments that have tried it. It hasn't tended to work out well. But the um, what I think we are aiming at that what you're depicting is. Um, a really desirable state of affairs, but why is it desirable? It is desirable because it enables people to get beyond fear. If you turn on the TV now, if you talk to people, there is so much fear, and this fear gets actively cultivated and whipped up because fear is useful. Fear works. I hold with Roosevelt that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And what we are trying to do is to get to a situation where people do not feel fear. If there is something that they want to go up and advocate for, they don't have to worry about getting onto a government list. They don't have to worry that they are going to be in physical danger 
um, if they go out and protest something. They don't have to worry that the digital trail that they leave, because we are all going to leave something, is going to be manipulated and abused and used against them to blackmail them or to lock them up. We are talking about a psychological liberation movement. So, you know, in, in short, my view of, of the goal, it, you know, I, I would want to see uh, a, a country where we're no longer in an endless state of emergency, you know, and that's how I'll put it shortly. But I'll talk a bit more about, you know, how I think we might get there. And you kind of touched on it in that um, uh, you hinted at the idea of an organization like Restore the Fourth uh, being sort of like an, an NRA, but for um, for privacy rights. And uh, I always uh, I always love to use the old analogy of you know some of the old guys listening will remember this T-shirt that had uh, the PG. Um, I believe is the PGP algorithm printed on one side of the shirt and the other one said, you know, this shirt is a munition. And we're going back to the 90s when you literally were not allowed to export certain encryption <laughs> across uh, international borders. Um, Heaven forfend that the British would get that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it's almost like you, you almost have to think about encryption like a munition. Uh, you have a good, you know, Similar to uh, the critiques that you hear from uh, from the gun rights movement, we're looking at governments that feel that we are not, as individual citizens, we're not responsible enough. We're not, um, uh, you know, we're not to be trusted to have the same grade of uh, encryption tools that the the military or the government should have, and just as the as the, you know the second right second amendment rights advocates uh feel that they should be able to have an ar-15 we should be able to have aes it's an interesting analogy and it's one that i've given some some thought to and one way to um conceptualize this is to appreciate how much success second amendment activists have had in this country Amen. They have been, been able to get us to a situation where we have, say, 10 to 15,000 people per year mm. dying as a result of guns, but where that is considered to be something that is culturally acceptable, not necessarily acceptable in the sense that everyone is happy with it, but acceptable in the sense that le the legislature is not going to do anything yeah. about it. And it's kind of a and natural yet, course of event. It's something and shit yet, happens. Yeah. <laughs> and the, yeah, when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, when it comes to people's privacy, when it comes to um, for the kind of safety that we all deserve in our communications, then the criterion is entirely different. It's the, bizarre. The criterion is, oh, but people may, one person may hypothetically die in I mean, the future. We, we no, that is not the criterion. We are talking here about fundamental rights that you don't trade off for practicality you don't trade off against um for um for whether um a, a valuation of costs and benefits you're talking about things that have been there for us since the founding of the republic yeah. and i do not see why we are forced to accept so many people dying because of guns because of the second amendment but one death is too many when it comes to the fourth yeah we should at least have parity and we Saw the most bizarre. Well, I'm not saying that we should actually have fifteen thousand um, <laughs> deaths a year as a result of the fourth. Yeah, yeah. Nor do I think that would happen. Yeah. But, um, for, but the fact remains is that the narrative around the Fourth Amendment is that if we allow privacy to people, yeah. then ISIS is going to kill us all tomorrow. But we saw kind of this bizarre display of, of lack of parity in, uh, you know, the Second versus Fourth Amendment with the San Bernardino case where uh, we, were, we were critiquing, we were spending more time and energy critiquing the manufacturer of a device that the shooter may have used to communicate to uh, communicate his plans than we did on the manufacturers of the device they actually used to kill people. It's mysterious, isn't it? 
<laughs> I mean, may, maybe I have a different attitude on this because I grew up in a country that functionally doesn't have guns, okay? Yeah. Um, but, um, for, but it seems strange how differently we are willing to value different protections. And I think that ultimately, with respect to the Second Amendment, that is due to the NRA scaring the living bejesus out of legislators. Yeah. Well, I'd love so, to get to a point where that become where the Fourth Amendment and uh, encryption and digital privacy rights becomes the same third rail issue that if a politician steps on it, they're done. So the, 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 the angle that I think is often missed is that we talk a lot about the risks of privacy. We don't talk a lot about the risks of eroding privacy. Um, and the underlying nature of the technology that we are dealing with, the technologies that guarantee us privacy, are such that there is an enormous risk to exceptional access. There is enormous risk to government access. And these aren't risks to, uh, uh, and these are not necessarily the risks of oppression and state-level censorship. These are risks to, uh, um, or at least within the United States, these are risks to dissidents abroad, these are the these are risks to having, um, you know, the, the the people that I encounter in my uh, uh, security and activism work that are under the most dramatic surveillance threats are frequently people who are uh, facing surveillance threats that are in their homes, surveillance threats that are from people who have you know who physically are you know intimate partner violence is a huge threat model on um, the number of different people who are selling tools to exploit the devices of people that they know is enormous. Um, and the security technology that we that also protects people's rights to free speech um, from their government also protects people from those threat models. Um, and so it's an enormous basic human right that has of having secure and trustworthy devices that people, uh, as devices are, digital devices are extensions of people's minds and people have a right to the integrity of those minds, um, that we can't build a technology that uh, uh, we, we have this inherent trade-off between the security that exists there um, and, any, and, and, the, and the Fourth Amendment sort of reinforces the need for uh, uh, government not to build in a sort of generalized weakness into the world, but really have to go after specific crimes and specific problems. Um, and that also guarantees sort of the integrity and trustworthiness of the computers that we use. I think you bring forth a good, uh, a good point when you talk about the need to, um, to, to communicate the risks of lack of privacy. And I, I think that's a, a very good, uh, a very good technique to use when we go and interact with politicians and things like that. Um, you can, especially where you can uh, provide them an example that hits home with them or their constituents. For instance, Senator Tatone in New York, who put forth the equivalent of that California bill that you defeated, he wanted to make um, to pretty much all but ban um, the sale of mobile devices with full disk encryption. Senator Tatone also happens to be a, a huge LGBT activist. You know, if you look at uh, a politician like that, we would want to point out it wasn't digital surveillance, but I mean, remember uh, Stonewall. I mean, how, how much was the LGBT community surveilled by law enforcement uh, back in the day? And it's not a, um, uh, you know, it's not a theoretical thing in some other countries where that iPhone 6 could be keeping, uh, you know, uh, an LGBT, pers LGBT person alive in uh, a situation where they have to live in the closet because of where they are. That's an excellent point. Um, and it is certainly the case for, um, for transgender people in the, here in the United States that they currently experience high rates of violence, high rates of government efforts to oppress them. And it is entirely possible um, in the context of weak privacy 
laws and in the context of forced weak encryption on devices for transgender people to be vulnerable in that way. The, the, this, we, have, we have moved greatly in this society, but, um, for, but there are still plenty of places where that kind of stuff can get you killed. But this is just one example. But like, let's say if we, if we were dealing with a politician in like Senator Tone's uh, having that stance, you know, I'd say to him, you know, if this were 30, 40 years ago, this, the, you know, this cracking, cracking encryption could be used to, uh, you know, to track down LGBT people when they were under oppression. Um, and I think this plays out in the context of schools with the kinds of devices that are issued to um, school children by their school districts. Yeah. Insecure iPads, insecure laptops, access by the school to what you are posting and your thoughts. Yeah. Another about, good example. About sexuality, about, about sex itself. Um, outside of um, school time and it becomes a matter for school yeah. discipline um, for, and school intrusion when it should not be the case. And if you're just tuning in now, we're, you're listening to the Privacy Patriots inaugural podcast on Radio Statler here at the Hope Conference. And uh, I'm here, you're, you're listening to... Fungaboo, Zaki Munyan, and, and our head chair, Alex Matthews, uh, Restore the Fourth. Um, so you guys actually, uh, there's an IRC channel, uh, and somebody actually has apparently been feeling ignored uh, and have a, has a question for oh, you. Oh, we didn't oh. have access. Yeah, access. no, it's, it's Thanks not Thanks for giving fault. us a head up. Head up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't even aware. I got a text message just like, you need to get into Uh-oh. the booth, and <laughs> there's a question on IRC. Uh, so, um, this is probably backtracking uh, for quite a bit for you guys, um, but uh, the question is, uh, the Isle of Man is at a crossroads concerning cloud deployment legislation. What are the tenets of open cloud legislation should be fundamentally included in near future legislation? Note, everyone from Mark Sugarworth to EDS is looking uh, to this tiny state for guidance. To this tiny state, meaning the United meaning States? Meaning the, the Isle, the of, Isle Man. of Man. Yeah, the Isle of Man. Oh, okay. Okay. I all know almost nothing about this issue. Um. I, th- I've, I know where the Isle of Man is. Um, <laughs> that, that's stuff. I don't know where the but, cloud is. Well, Where's the cloud? But <laughs> when it comes to cloud legislation, I think we may be able to speak in general terms. Um, and perhaps there would be further comment from the person in IRC if he can give us specifics as to what is being proposed. Um, but the but it would be fairly clear that we would uh, oppose um, legislation that required law enforcement access to um, the cloud or to cloud providers. We have opposed the involvement of Dropbox in the PRISM program. Um, And we feel that it is very dangerous and it is often not not necessarily treated with the care that it should be. I'm aware of an academic institution in the United States that does a lot of pioneering research and they hold a lot of their research on a cloud service that is hosted in Israel and are vulnerable to intrusion and hacking as a result. So even within large and experienced institutions, they're not always going to understand the security risks that are involved in having a vulnerable cloud. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like you know, all, all of this government intrusion and, and bad legislation, it's like whack-a-mole. I mean, the, uh, there's new stuff popping up every day. I find it hard to keep track of. Um, you know, thanks to this listener for you know, kind of tipping us to maybe another area that we have to examine. We can we can refer this through to Restore the Force chapter in the UK, which is called Reinstate. Mm-hmm. That is R E I N S T eight at reinstate.org, and they are responsible for digital privacy advocacy within the context of the United Kingdom. I would have to be reminded on whether the Isle of Man technically legally is part of the United Kingdom. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but this would definitely come under their remit. So another issue that I think is 
important in cloud deployments is without a doubt, um, the cloud has become uh, an enormous source, an enormous resource for government surveillance, um, especially because it tends to be that your rights don't follow you um, with your data. Um, we all have, you know, especially in Europe, there is a strong notion at a sort of constitutional level that your your rights to privacy, your rights to the uh, uh, integrity of data, your rights to particularized suspicion should follow you with your data. But um, the United States and the United States' role as a cloud provider has been a perfect example of really where that idea breaks down. Um, uh, for non-Americans whose data ends up on American cloud systems, um, you non-Americans have no privacy rights um, under U.S. law, um, and there is almost unlimited power to uh, uh, search and surveil and uh, uh, manage that data. And there are very active programs. Uh, the U.K. similarly has, you know, essentially full take on uh, uh, their. Uh, uh, digital systems and digital data that's hosted in Europe. Uh, we know that uh, technologies like XKeyscore are being deployed in places like Germany. Um, so we're seeing uh, the cloud as becoming an enormous resource uh, and an enormous sort of vulnerability and surface area um, for uh, data to be uh, surveilled um, and personal information to be acquired and mined. Um, so I think it's it's very relevant, and it's a huge opportunity for even small countries to really push back and get changes in behavior by creating clear economic incentives for countries to change their surveillance behavior. Mm -hmm. um, just to um, take off on, on one of the points that you were making regarding the rights of EU citizens to privacy in their cloud data. This has been a matter of considerable debate over the last um, six months or so since the invalidation of the Safe Harbor Agreement um, for, that governed US-EU data flows. Um, and the current situation, more or less, is that if EU citizens believe that their data has been improperly um, for intercepted by um, U.S. law enforcement as a result of their storing their data with U.S. companies, then they can petition an assistant secretary in um, the, the in the bowels of D.C. as part of the State Department um, to check whether the appropriate processes were followed in their case without confirming or denying that their data had actually been intercepted or not. Um, this is a wildly inadequate and risible remedy. Um, and we expect there to be further litigation on this within the EU space that is going to tend towards more intense protection for EU citizens' rights. But it's going to take time. We're really talking a 10 to 15 year time scale for the shock waves of the surveillance revelations to really play themselves out in the sphere of international law. Um, and so part of what we are doing is monitoring that process, shaping it a little as and when we can. Now, since we're starting to, to dip into um, international realms, is it a good time to maybe you know point out that the name of our organization, Restore the Fourth, that does inherently have kind of an American um, uh, context to it. It does, and you know, and I think that fits in with our mission in a way, it, which is to to act locally to a certain extent, and even in in the realm of the internet age, you know, acting na uh, in Washington, even if you're doing politics in Washington, that's local. <laughs> um, so you know, and also, but is it fair to say that? Um, you know, we, we are also dealing with new emerging privacy issues that aren't, are, you know, by the letter of the law, are not really covered by the Fourth Amendment. I think that it is a matter of contention as to what new technologies the Fourth Amendment can be construed to cover. After the invention of the telephone, 
it took 75 years for the Supreme Court explicitly to recognize that the content of phone conversations was covered by the Fourth Amendment. Um, we are now approximately 75 years after the start of the invention of the computer, mm-hmm. and we see the Supreme Court beginning to grapple with these issues. So, yay. Yeah. Um, so here we go again. But it's a <laughs> slow process, um, and it is difficult for courts to consider what analogies are appropriate to apply. Most of the existing Fourth Amendment precedents are still pre-digital. This came up in a Second Circuit case that we were working on, which turned on the question of whether a search of a computer hard drive could be analogized to previous precedents that dealt with the search of filing cabinets Mm. or not. And in some (laughs) ways, a computer is like a filing cabinet. In other ways, it is not. Um, and it could be considered to be like a briefcase, which you can seize all of more easily rather than just certain files from it. Yeah. Um, so your choice of analogy can dictate which precedent applies. And it is not an easy task for our jurists to decide the choice of analogy that most carefully protects people's rights. Now, now how about instances where... I can, I can point to one good example of a privacy issue where I think it's settled in law and, and I think even in, in somewhat in common sense that you have a privacy issue that we may want to rein in, but the Fourth Amendment doesn't do it. And the example I give would be Alpers, the license plate readers. The, the um, precedent with that is that it's not considered a Fourth Amendment issue for police to scan people's license plates as they drive by and read them with optical character recognition because that machine is doing uh, what the officer could do himself anyway, but just it's a matter of, I believe there was a court precedent that said if it's a matter of super sensory, if it's technology that's super sensory, then that breaks the Fourth Amendment. If you look into a house with through a thermal, the walls... With a thermal yeah. imager. But with this, this is just a matter of, of super efficiency. We're doing what we're already doing, but just in great droves. But even if the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect against super efficient surveillance, should does that mean that, you know, should we look to, uh, to enact protections beyond what... The Bill of Rights. Well, I think the reason to work so intensively in municipalities and in state legislatures is to be able to go beyond beyond the protections that are explicitly um, built into federal law. Um, However, um, the question of whether the Fourth Amendment can cover um, um, privacy concerns of that nature um, is a really lively one at the moment among legal scholars. This is often termed the mosaic theory of the Fourth Amendment, that you might have a single intrusion on a single person and the precedent might deal with that. This happens with cell phone metadata. This happens with aerial photography, for example. Um, But then what happens if the violations are aggregated and there's a large number of them? What happens if the technology that is doing it is far more intense? So, so for example, um, aerial photography is legal of somebody's home is not considered an intrusion a tre- or a trespass under the Fourth Amendment um, because the Supreme Court analogized it to somebody looking out of a plane with their eye. So, replace that eye with a gigapixel camera <laughs> with a, an incredibly high resolution and a storage facility that can reel back and store pictures of that Um, for property over time does that make a legal difference and the answer is that the Supreme Court has just begun as of 2014 to start addressing these questions but they are very splintered on them and it's really difficult for them to figure out exactly how this is going to apply and there is not a consensus that has emerged on the court yet about how this should work Mm -hmm. so to an extent, we have to wait to see who the new Supreme Court justice will be. But 
the but the then there are like five different opinions on the court at the moment as to how this works mm. so it is going to work itself out again it's just going to take a couple of decades for the supreme court to figure out what its new fourth amendment doctrines will be which makes it an exciting time for us to be involved in this process and playing whatever small role we can in shaping the reasoning that they come to but in the context of you know folks that may be listening and learning of restore the fourth as an organization for the first time uh, would you say it's fair that despite our name that we we are looking at you know that we uh we do concern ourselves with issues that may be uh you know beyond the the fourth amendment um i think it's fair to say that for each chapter they chart their own path as Mm -hmm. to what is appropriate to preserve the prospect for human flourishing yeah um and so in our boston chapter for example we've done a deal of work on police accountability on police militarization on body cameras and how they should work. And that is not in the context of the federal Fourth Amendment, but it's still really important to figure out in terms of our interactions with law enforcement and the kind of suspicion that is used and the kind of systems that are applied. So um, we each try to figure it out according to the politics of what is possible in the states in which we operate. You know, I. In a general sense, I like to say that, um, you know, we're seeing the Fourth Amendment eroded. If anything, I feel like we should be uh, adding more protections beyond the Fourth Amendment, not going in reverse. And I and at least two legislators federally agree with you, but yes, (laughs) we're working on it. Well, with the remaining time we have, I I was wondering, uh, I was looking to do two, cover two things, you know, we, we touched on... Um, the two New York bills that uh, that we respectively worked on, but I wanted to kind of run by a couple other bills that we've seen it come up in the last year, uh, some of which are still in play in different places, and, and get your opinion on them. And then before we go, I think we should maybe we could talk a bit about you know beyond politics and legislation. I think another thing that we do in Restore the Fourth is promote. Um, you, you know, accessible, user-friendly means of using encryption and, and other digital means of, of uh, securing your privacy. So maybe we could just touch on that on the way out. Mm-hmm. But the couple bills I wanted to get your take on beyond that, I mean, the big one was, uh, my laptop just died on me just as I pulled up my notes, but I'll, I'll remember them. I don't, I'm going to lose a lot of the details, but uh, Feinstein, Senator Feinstein from California, um, and I forget who the co-sponsor was. It was just on my screen before it went by. Senator Richard Burr of Thank North you. Carolina. <laughs> so uh, the two of them, luckily this is dead in the water. It's history, but it's uh, good to mention that they were trying to do a national, um, not I guess we would call it an encryption ban. They wanted to enforce that um, in any software with encryption had to have uh, a backdoor or a shared key that, uh, law enforcement or government could could access. Yeah. It was a bill articulating a belief that there must be some solution that would give law enforcement a magic backdoor to yeah. encrypted systems without letting in the bad guys and kind of encouraging people to wor- work on that because, hey, tech people are smart people. Um, this is rhetoric that we hear a lot. We hear it directly come from the Clinton campaign, for example. Um, and we hear similarly coming from the Trump campaign that companies should do what is their patriotic duty to do and should participate in um, helping to catch ter- terrorists. So there is a deep belief among policymakers on Capitol Hill that this is possible. And the reason is really that policymakers spend their lives splitting the difference between competing proposals. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult for them to get their heads around the notion that on end-to-end encryption, it's either secure or it's not. And there isn't a magic golden key, they no matter to, how much They wanted to write legislation to make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Yeah, but that's not really the way that they're seeing it. And <laughs> politically speaking, um, the advantageous position to chart out is to say, well, I'm in the reasonable middle here on this issue. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that, 
And that's where this flows from. It's not exactly being intentionally cretinous. It's being politically savvy and technologically illiterate. And I think that, that that's a good term to drop because I think we as uh, hacker community, open source community, digital privacy rights advocate community, we need to become politically savvy. We do. And this is something that we can help you with. So one thing that we should mention is that if you're interested in getting involved with this kind of work, then this evening we are having a get-together at the Stoltz Pub. It's on West 33rd Street. It's um, not even a block from here at 8.15 p.m. Come and meet the Restore the Fourth folks and figure out what you can be doing in your community um, and what, find out about what we are doing to try and secure the blessings of privacy and liberty for us and for our, our descendants. Two, two other lesser-known bills I wanted to broach with you guys. One was um, uh, the, the burner cell phone bill, which I think is, may still be in play. I don't know. What, what is that one? I don't actually know that one. Okay, so basically this was... a little was, bit about that. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead Zucky. It, it was... Uh, I think it was a knee-jerk reaction to some of the things... One, one of the, the Paris attacks where they were saying... Uh, they were... I think the, in, the, in the wake when they were only theorizing that the attackers were using encryption to, to coordinate their attacks. And then I think it proved to be otherwise. But regardless... Um, over here on the other side of the pond, they, uh, we, we had um, one congresswoman that was putting forth that you would have to um, you know, show some form of ID or something to even get. You know, nowadays, uh, if you're going without contract, which more and more people are, I know I do, and I chose to do so for this reason, is that I went and bought my SIM card, picked it up off the you know, shelf, and then paid for it in cash. And uh, on the account, if you log into the account for the MVNO that uh, provides my AT&T service, you know, my, my real name is not there. And to that extent, um, that is what I, I think like a, a little known secret in protecting your privacy is to opt for that. Because when we talk about all these apps that are tracking your movements and such, isn't it a little better if it's tracking a John Doe? I mean, there's still it, there's still implications, but if you're not tied to that I'm I am SI number, yeah, you're in is a much it, better position, and they it, want to ban this. It's important to have space for that. It's important to have space for anonymity. It's important to have space for cash. Honestly, these kinds of bills frustrate me because they feel like they are so reactive. I swear that if tomorrow there's a terrorist attack in Frankfurt and the attacker is caught on camera carrying a vanilla ice cream the next day there is going to be a bill to ban vanilla ice cream <laughs> so um for the these things are not causative of such attacks um they are in an important tool to protect yeah. us from the state and things like cash Things like privacy in um, your logging and information or obfuscation in your login information. These are things that have been around for a long time. And most, the vast majority of the people who use them do so without any nefarious intent of any kind. And it's important to articulate that and to let people know that, know that cash is not a cool tool for criminals. Burner phones are not a tool for criminals. Like the roads, they are, they are general tools that sometimes criminals use. I mean, what you're describing in these political reactions, I think that the word knee-jerk would come to mind. And it just, uh, I, I think it's another good uh, moment to, to say that, you know, just as in the Second Amendment, uh, whenever there's a shooting, there's a knee-jerk reaction by the NRA. I think it's time that our movement and our community had someone representing them that's going to have that knee-jerk kind of public relations. Yeah, there's a knee-jerk reaction by the NRA, <laughs> except when a black guy is the one who gets shot. But, yeah. I'll use another amendment there and plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, lastly, before we go, you know, like, it, nowadays, you know, what, what I'll term regular folks, you know, those of us who aren't hackers, aren't coders, aren't, um, you know, 
don't even know what an encryption key is have all sorts of options in, in the post-Snowden world to, uh, to keep their, their information private. The options have expanded massively, to be honest. And for somebody who does not come from a technical background such as myself, it is a great blessing to see these tools that are out here that's so much easier to use. We've moved in only a couple of years from a situation where the best way to protect your email privacy was PGP to a situation where there are tools like ProtonMail that you can use, you can use Signal for messaging. These are so much easier for anybody to use. It's wonderful. Uh, Zach, do you use Signal? Yes. You, can you tell us a bit about so, how that, you know, if someone hasn't used that app, what it's like? So, the, so Signal is uh, uh, an app that is developed by people in our community that we trust. Um, there is an app that we developed that has been developed by people in our community that we trust. Um, and the, uh, the protocol is so widely respected uh, for its ability to provide secure communication that it has been adopted by companies like Facebook for WhatsApp um, and their, for their secret messenger. It's sort of becoming very quickly the industry standard. But the wonderful thing about the Signal app in particular is, is the entire app is open source. So um, while, for instance, you get the benefits of the Signal uh, uh, protocol when you use WhatsApp to communicate, when you're using the Signal app, you have an entire app uh, that many people, including myself, have looked over the code, uh, trust that, that the technology is solid and that there is, uh, uh, um, which is not something I can do for WhatsApp. I can't look at the code. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, for many use cases, if you want to have a confidential uh, conversation, the best possible technology is Signal. Um, the unfortunate thing about Signal is you are leaving your metadata on uh, uh, Whisper System servers, uh, which is accessible to uh, law enforcement uh, with the court order. So uh, it's, it may not be the right solution for a whistleblower, uh, but if you want to ha just have a private conversation with your friends, family, with Restore the Fourth uh, uh, members, uh, yeah. it's a great technology. If you want to opt out of the purview of the American Stasi, it's, it's probably good enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you mentioned it's open source, but you know, for those of us who probably uh, you know wouldn't be uh, knowledgeable enough to look at the code and know bet any, but you know, this way or that, uh, I believe there's there's been an, uh, a third party audit and a white paper out on Signal. Well, I think even better is an understanding that lots of people who are who have a who are, who are passionate about security and privacy um, look at work with understand how the signal protocol works, look at how the app works, try to help fix bugs, um, that the people who work on the app are incredibly security conscious engineers, so that we do our best to make sure that that is a secure way to communicate. But I, I think the, uh, the important phenomena that I think an app like Signal brings forth is, is out of its usability. And I don't, they paid attention not only to um, the security and, and the mathematics, but the user interface. And how, you know, how, what was the, making the bar of entry for the average user as low as possible? I mean, they, I, I can tell when I use, set up that app, like they knew that people would be too lazy to register another account on another, another username on another system. And they, the, you can tell that they put a, a focus on making sure that it, it was going to be so turnkey that you know, even your mom can do it. And I, I can tell you I love being like, I, I'm, I feel able to have conversations with my family members and, and friends in other cities now that I, you know, speaking to Alex's presentation this morning about chilling effects, I realized I would never, I would never write these things because I wouldn't, want them, I wouldn't want it going through SMS or through instant messenger or anything like that. So, uh, with that, I mean we're uh, we're coming up on four o'clock, and I, I think it's been a a, a good uh, episode zero of the Privacy uh, Patriots podcast. And um, you want to just remind us of uh, our little get together one more time, so people who are at the conference can come on over and uh, hang out with us tonight. I can do so. Um, so restore the fourth meetup eight fifteen p.m. tonight at Stoltz Pub on West 33rd Street, um, and we look forward to seeing you there.
All right. Well, thanks for uh, for joining us. And uh, those of us who are tuning in at, at the Hope Conference, you know, uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. A lot of good um, and a lot of good uh, talks and workshops to to, to be had. And um, we'll be signing off. And if you want to check out, keep an eye on us. Uh, check back at privacypatriots.org where we'll uh, be archiving this uh, inaugural podcast and then um, we'll be uh, launching new episodes periodically. So thanks for listening. <laughs>